Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On the Unter den Linden, a grand boulevard in central Berlin, sits the mother of modern universities. Humboldt University was founded in 1810 by the educational reformer Wilhelm von Humboldt and was intended to be something new, a research university giving academics and students the freedom to develop their own interests rather than follow a prescriptive training programme. This model of academic freedom was hugely influential on American universities as they developed as research centres in the latter half of the 19th century. Now, many feel that academic freedom is in jeopardy as universities and colleges get caught up in the culture wars. I'm John Prado, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, are diversity statements a threat to academic freedom? More and more universities across the US now require faculty applicants to submit so-called diversity statements. These ask prospective academic staff to set out their commitment to and experience of promoting diversity. At the same time, some Republican-led states, most notably Florida, are putting their own restrictions on academia by limiting what universities and colleges can teach. How healthy is academic freedom in America? With me this week to discuss what diversity statements in academia are and whether this is an example of good intentions gone horribly awry are Idris Kaloon in Washington, D.C. and Charlotte Howard in New York. Idris, how are you doing and what's going on in the district? I'm doing well. D.C. is very cold this week, finally. Um, I found out that our favorite bagel shop, a place called Call Your Mother, is actually owned by the new White House chief of staff. One of his sidelines is running a bagel empire. Can you still go and get bagels there, or is that a conflict of interest now? I feel like I had a pre-existing relationship with the bagel shop, so it's fine. And I think my za'atar bagel with whitefish is of marginal contribution uh, to his bottom line. Ooh, that sounds delicious. It is good. This also feels very Curb Your Enthusiasm, like there's some kind of backstory to this bagel shop. Do you know the one where Larry tries to basically play out? He's He has a vendetta against one bagel shop, so he opens a one, another one right next door. It feels like House of Cards bagel edition, perhaps. There's another one where he tries to get a sandwich named after himself, right? And he lobbies someone and they it's like a gefilte fish sandwich with like capers and eggs and something kind of that no one would ever pick. And then he's very irate. I don't know if it's that one, but there, I guess there's a lot of carb-based humor and curb your enthusiasm. Charlotte, have you got any bagel-based news from New York? 
Sadly, no bagel news from New York, though I will say that it's impossible to believe that even D.C.'s best bagel is as good as New York's worst. We'll, we'll, we'll send you some good bagels from D.C. To, to New York. So this week, we're going to be talking about diversity or diversity, equity and inclusion statements in academia, which might sound like a sort of niche subject, but I think it's pretty interesting and gets into some bigger issues in American politics and American society at the moment. Idris, you and I first started talking about this a few months ago when somebody you knew was applying for tenure at an American university in the area of neuroscience and had to fill out a diversity statement explaining how her work would further the promotion of diversity, equity, and inclusion in American society, right? Yeah, that's right. And that got me down a rabbit hole because when I uh, was finishing my schooling a few years ago, I had not really encountered these sorts of statements, which basically ask anyone who's applying, they're used very commonly in the University of California system for anyone who's applying to be a faculty member, people who are going up for tenure, have to submit a statement in which they lay out their past contributions to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and their possibly, depending on how the prompt is written, their life experiences, as well as their future plans uh, once they're in the classroom. It's not just the University of California, you know, Estimates are still a bit fuzzy, but we think that as many as one in five faculty jobs might require uh, statements like this. And they're also more common among elite universities as well. And uh, that got me wondering, as someone who thinks a lot about the encroachment of these sets of ideas into, into universities, but also in society writ large, how exactly these were being used and whether or not there were right answers to these essay prompts. And Idris, you then went away and did a load of reporting, spoke to lots of people, and you've brought a couple of them back for us for the podcast. Who are we going to hear from first? The first person is Erwin uh, Chemerinsky, who's the dean of Berkeley Law School. In addition to that, he's an accomplished First Amendment scholar in his own right. I've spoken to him before about campus free speech issues, and he believes that there is essentially no conflict between uh, the use of these statements in hiring and First Amendment protections, and academic freedom as well. All schools have an obligation to make sure that they have faculty who can reach out to and teach a diverse student body. In California, we're not allowed to give any preference in hiring on the basis of race or sex. Affirmative action is not allowed. I assume that's where the Supreme Court is going to go for the entire country, and the case is now pending before it. Still, schools can pursue diversity in all ways, so long as they give no preference on the basis of race or sex. And so what diversity statements are saying is, what are you going to contribute to teaching in this very diverse environment? I don't think there's any violation of academic freedom in evaluating people for that any more than there is in evaluating them for what they're going to be as teachers in the classroom or what they can contribute as colleagues. And do you think that the use has been meaningful in affecting the sort of diversity of the faculty hired, or is it sort of orthogonal to that pursuit? I worry that the diversity statements may measure more the ability to write a good diversity statement mm -hmm. than necessarily what the person is going to do in dealing with diverse student body and faculty. I think the main value of diversity statements is it does focus the faculty's attention on the importance of diversity. And I've seen a study on my campus, the departments that required diversity statements ended up with greater diversity, but what's cause and what's effect, we'll never know. And, and what is your sense of, you mentioned that 
you know, you worried that it might be, you know, these statements might be measuring ability to to write these. Um, do you detect a sort of practical um, difference in in terms of subsequent to hiring that teachers are in fact more minded or more willing to to uh, to pursue work and, and more conscientious? Or what what difference do you think it practically makes? I don't know at this stage. Um, I do think there's a benefit in the message that it communicates to candidates that this is an institution that values diversity. I think it also focuses faculty attention on we really care about diversity. What the practical results of that are, it's very hard to know how to measure. Obviously, a lot's going to depend on how the diversity statements are used. So long as the diversity statements are about assessing what's this person going to be as a teacher and a colleague? Are they going to be able to deal with our diverse environment? I don't see any legality or First Amendment problems. Of course, there could be ways in which they would be used impermissibly. But I think the absence of lawsuits so far, despite threats, is an indication that the diversity statements are legal. They don't violate the First Amendment or the Constitution. And to get the opposing view, I went to New York to see the social psychologist Jonathan Haidt, uh, who teaches at New York University. He's been concerned about what he sees as the decline of academic freedom for a while. He wrote an essay called The Coddling of the American Mind, which made a very big splash uh, a few years ago. And he told me that although he's seen a backslide in the corporate world from peak woke, he doesn't think that this has happened at all in higher education and diversity statements are just the latest emblem of that. I've seen no sign whatsoever of a pendulum swing in higher ed. Higher ed is not anchored to reality. We don't have to make money. A university's ranking won't go down just because it has a bad educational culture. It's the, you know, the prestige levels are sort of lodged in public consciousness and it will take decades to change. So I have not yet seen signs of a pendulum swing in higher ed. And as you say, all that's happened is just ever more bureaucratization of, of DEI mandates, yes. I asked him how problematic he thinks these mandates are. Every institution is a constant battleground for control of the narrative. And the more control is given to the DEI bureaucracy to define the place, uh, you know, like Yale or Berkeley or any place else, if you define it as a white supremacist institution that is in urgent need of radical reform and rebalancing to attain equity, then that's the narrative that takes over. Uh, and and that narrative, I believe, is incompatible with the functioning of a university. Uh, you either have to see a university as structured to pursue social justice or to pursue truth. You can only have one telos, only one primary value. And throughout my career, until 2015, there was no dispute. We were structured to find truth. That was our sacred value. The worst thing you could do was fabricate data or lie. But that's no longer the worst thing you can do. When I asked him what the worst thing you could do was, he said, Question a DEI policy. Idris, should we start with Owen Chemerinsky there, who was speaking in favor of these kinds of statements? I mean, how I read this is that, as he said, affirmative action on the basis of race is illegal in America. But scholars who look at diversity worry that just treating everyone equally, the kind of Martin Luther King version of being progressive on race, sort of isn't enough anymore and have worried that for a while. And so given that 
affirmative action on the basis of race is illegal. What these colleges are doing is getting people who apply to tenure positions to sign up to this version of diversity, which says that actually you do need to put your thumb on the scale. Right. Is that what's going on? That kind of seemed to be what he was saying. So it's interesting. If you look at the guidance that the Berkeley Office for Faculty Equity and Welfare distributes on how to score these diversity statements, they explicitly say that if a candidate writes that they intend to ignore the background of their students and treat everyone the same, then they should be awarded the lowest possible marks for their essay. And that is, I think, in when I spoke to administrators there, they explained that uh, the reason for that is that that sort of colorblind equality is the lowest possible bar for an excellent candidate. And candidates need to instead be equity-minded rather than equality-minded. My feeling is that it, this, this whole thing is tricky because, like you said, in the state of California, affirmative action is already illegal. And treatment of people based on their race is not allowed. Probably the Supreme Court will apply this to the country as a whole in June. And universities which still want to maintain a diverse faculty and a diverse student body are going to come up with creative ways that can escape judicial scrutiny. And I think this might be one of them. The problem, I think, is that equity is certainly a a politically loaded term, right? It appeals to those who um, have a left of center persuasion, and it turns off those, you know, roughly half of Americans who are maybe a bit more skeptical about the extent of systemic racism and the way that it affects things in universities. What these statements are essentially doing is asking candidates to affirm that view that equity is needed to repair the uh, damage that systemic racism and, and other things have done to the academic pipeline. And it asks them for examples of their diversity work. Some of the prompts ask specifically for their contributions and potential contributions to anti-racism, which is, again, a sort of newfangled political project that certainly appeals to one side or the other. So, you know, in theory, they could be assessed very narrowly and, and perhaps in a way that um, that is uh, protective of people who might have different views, but it's very hard to tell. And one problem is that these are also fairly nebulously written, and it's hard to know how exactly they're being used. One of the things that I think is interesting about both this discussion and last week's discussion is that there is a category of Americans who get completely worked up about this type of issue and a category that would say it's not at all important and it's much ado about nothing. Do you think, Idris, that this is having knock-on effects within academic institutions already? Or do you think that it remains a largely theoretical risk and we're just on the cusp of something that could be more damaging? Well, it's already being used in hiring for most of the University of California system, which is a major research institution. It's being used for tenure decisions there as well. It's also not just confined to teaching positions. The Department of Energy is requiring grants to come with diversity plans attached. Uh, The NIH Brain Initiative, which funds neuroscience research, also asks labs to submit uh, diversity plans alongside their scientific plans. And in that case, what you see is it'll affect who gets hired, it'll affect who gets tenured, it'll affect uh, the distribution of grant money, which is the lifeblood of basic science research uh, in this country. So these are so new, and they're so relatively understudied, that we don't have an exact understanding of what their effects are on, on the university. But 
this is how you remake the structure of American universities, right? Those are the core things you would need to have uh, a grip on. Idris, these statements, if I'm honest, seem a bit silly to me. I don't really see why somebody who's applying for tenure in neuroscience should have to write a statement about how their neuroscience research will improve diversity and inclusion in America. But what's the answer to Cheminsky's argument, which is basically that this is, you know, either harmless or just a kind of measure of a good faith on behalf of an applicant that they are interested in teaching a diverse body of students? Um, yeah, Chemerinsky is a better lawyer than me. So he knows this stuff to, to a much greater degree of specificity. I think that one of the things he mentioned was there haven't been lawsuits yet. And therefore, this policy is probably okay. And I spoke to another law professor Janet Halley at uh, Harvard, who was also a feminist legal scholar, who actually thought that those days were numbered, that essentially there was going to be a lawsuit over this. And she suspected that a conservative Supreme Court wouldn't have as open a view as as Chemerinsky on whether or not uh, the University of California, which is a public institution, is violating the First Amendment. She argued that this was creating basically compelled speech uh, for people who sought application. So I think it'll be litigated by lawyers who are better than me. But I, I think that there are powerful arguments you can muster, given that the University of California is a public institution and the First Amendment does apply to them. One of the reasons why I'm glad that Idris raised this subject as something to do for an episode is it's a wedge into a number of really big questions for not just universities, but American society more broadly. So one is how you nurture diversity of thought within American culture and within American universities. Then the second is how this interacts with the big question, an important question in my view, of how to support diverse communities when, particularly at a time when affirmative action might be struck down, what does the post-affirmative action world look like, both for universities and for companies? And then lastly, what are the implications of a backlash, which is already underway to these types of policies? So you see conservative lawmakers trying to advance legislation that is supposedly in service of promoting free speech, but in actuality does the opposite. And so there are all these kind of interesting questions about speech in America that are bound up in what seems to be a narrow subject, but actually helps us understand a few broader phenomena. Okay, we'll go back to a mid-century debate about academic freedom at the height of anti-communism in a moment. But first, the usual reminder, there really has never been a finer time to subscribe to The Economist if you don't already do so. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. You'll find that in the notes for this episode. Washington sees the biggest free all-star show in years as the Committee on Un-American Activities hears testimonies from prominent Hollywood personalities. It was the late 1940s, and anti-communist paranoia was gripping Washington. The House was interrogating Hollywood glitterati to try and root out any communist sympathizers. I believe that 95% of the people in California are decent, honest American citizens. The Communist Party is a minority, but a dangerous minority. President Truman, reluctantly at first, introduced a loyalty program in the federal government. Employees were investigated for any links with communist or subversive organizations. States followed suit. 
In the Golden State, the program didn't extend to employees of the University of California. But preempting action from local lawmakers, the regions brought in a requirement for employees to sign a loyalty oath. I had been in the Navy, I had signed loyalty oaths. Howard Shackman was a biochemistry instructor at UC Berkeley when the oath was introduced in 1949. In 2013, he spoke to the university about that time. But I didn't like the loyalty oath at the university because they singled out the faculty and because it was really a device for implementing a policy with which I was in complete disagreement. So serving in the United States military, you sign a loyalty oath to defend the United States government. But that was beside the point at the University of California. Ours was designed essentially to eliminate communists from the campus. The UC oath asked faculty to affirm that they were not a member of the Communist Party or any other organization which advocates the overthrow of the government by force or violence. Many staff were appalled at what they saw as an affront to academic freedom. Howard Shackman was fiercely opposed, but felt forced to sign. So when I saw that my career was in jeopardy, I had either one or two young kids at that time, I decided that this was too risky, and with great reluctance I decided that I would not be a non-signer. The oaths were widely complied with, Of over 9,000 UC employees, only 31 ended up not signing. In August 1950, they were fired. Two years later, the state Supreme Court overturned the policy. The justices ruled that the fired UC employees should be reinstated as long as they signed a state loyalty oath, which had no references to communism. Any U.S. citizen working for the University of California today still has to sign an oath, professing their support for the state and national constitutions. But the 1949 loyalty oath went too far, a product of the hysteria-fueled witch hunts of that era. To some, today's diversity statements are an unpleasant echo of that history. Charlotte, it might seem a bit far-fetched to compare these DEI statements to the kind of anti-communist panic uh, in the 40s and 50s. But I guess the point of similarity and the reason there's a bit of an echo here is that it's just a bit uncomfortable to ask academics to sign up to any kind of ideology, even one that you know looks quite benign, as a condition of getting academic tenure. Yeah, that's right. I was looking at some of the history of academic freedom in the US, which is actually quite interesting. It wasn't until the 1950s that the Supreme Court linked academic freedom with the First Amendment. But there is a long, over century long history within universities themselves of trying to assert that an essential part of higher education is real freedom for faculty in the research and in their publications, in their teaching, and the way that they try to advance rigorous debate and open expression of thought. So it was in 1915 that a group of professors set forth a set of principles that articulated this and talked about professional autonomy for freedom within faculty. And it's worth noting that even though people often talk about academic freedom within the context of the First Amendment, the court has never specifically stated it as such. It's interesting. These loyalty oaths that are very frequently invoked by the opponents of of these new diversity statements, everyone seems to think that they were a misstep, but the court never gave a sort of firm, the Supreme Court certainly never gave a firm ruling saying so. And I wonder if you imagine that instead of writing an essay on your contributions to diversity, 
universities were, let's say, in conservative states like Texas or Florida, asking applicants to write essays on their thoughts about subversion of the Constitution and the importance of of that. And they were assessing those essays in ways that were kind of difficult to understand. And and we were basically shaping the faculty there as a result of that, what the reaction would be. I, I think that, you know, even if you're minded to think that equity is a good value that universities ought to uphold, you would see that process and, and maybe be concerned. Now, I think we're going to talk about it later. You know, the right of center states are not going about it nearly as surgically as that. They're they're just trying to basically take a, a nuclear bomb to the institution to, to eradicate this set of thinking. Okay, well, as Idris hinted there, we'll be back in a moment to talk about some different species of threats to academic freedom in America. Idris, you've been speaking to Ken Roth recently, and he's waged his own fight for academic freedom, right? Yeah, I spoke to him earlier this week, and he told me his recent story. For the last three decades... I have been the executive director of Human Rights Watch. And having done this for a long time, it seemed like a good moment for me to step down. And so last April, I publicly announced that I would be leaving Human Rights Watch at the end of August. And very quickly after that, I received a phone call from the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy, which is part of the Harvard Kennedy School. And they asked me, would I like to take a senior fellowship at the Kennedy School for the current academic year. I agreed. And the only formality, or what we thought was a formality, was that we needed the dean's approval. And we arranged a Zoom call in July. And we had a perfectly pleasant half-hour chat until right at the end, he asked me this weird question. He said, do I have any enemies? Now, that's a weird question for me because I've got tons of enemies. Human Rights Watch records, you know, investigates, monitors, and reports on the abuses of governments. They don't like it. They don't like me in particular. And so I told him that. And I then ran through a few examples. I said, look, both the Chinese government and the Russian government have personally sanctioned me. But I had an inkling what he was driving at. So I also mentioned that the Israeli government doesn't like me. And that turned out to be the kiss of death. Because two weeks later, the car center called me up and sheepishly had to admit that the dean had vetoed my fellowship because of my criticism of Israel. And how surprised were you with that? I mean, obviously you've said that you received pushback all over the world before, but were you surprised to find the same pushback at Harvard? I never thought that the Kennedy School would succumb to pressure to veto me because of my criticism of Israel. You know, it's not as if I am blind to the pressure that partisan supporters of the Israeli government put on institutions. You know, I faced that at Human Rights Watch all the time. I I had, you know, many donors who also cared about Israel. And so I was, you know, I was used to that kind of pressure. But for me, there was a bottom line to that. You know, if if a donor wanted to exempt their favorite country, whether it was Israel or any place else, Human Rights Watch was not the place for them. And I would have expected that Harvard would do the same with respect to academic freedom. And indeed, if any academic institution in the world could afford to say, you know, no to donors, it would be Harvard, the the richest institution in the world. Now, I should say that we don't know for sure that it was donor pressure. The dean told the faculty head of the Carr Center that it was people who mattered to him who objected to my fellowship. 
Um, and he denied that they were donors. But were these people who were worried about donors, you know, who were these people? You know, we have no idea. I was able to make a big public stink about this veto. And so ultimately, the Kennedy School dean reversed himself in the face of a torrent of media criticism, huge protests at Harvard. But the fact that he reversed course for me, given the pressure I was able to mount, really says nothing about what would happen in the case of less visible scholars or students who criticize Israel. And this was an opportunity for Harvard to do the right thing, and not simply to reverse my case, which is really not what this is about, but rather to say, we uphold academic freedom even when criticism of Israel is involved. And they haven't gone that far. They've said, we uphold academic freedom for any country. But they're not you know, saying it in the explicit terms that really matter here. And what everybody's looking to them to say. And do you know what the criticism was? The supposed criticism was that I or Human Rights Watch were biased. In fact, I think the problem was we were unbiased, you know, impartial, in the sense that the Kennedy School is filled with very pro-Israel officials, you know, not even people. So they have no trouble bringing in pro-Israel bias. Every once in a while, they will bring in a biased Palestinian. But, but clearly, the reason that criticism from Human Rights Watch stung so deeply was because we are impartial. So when we conclude that the Israeli government is committing serious violations, people take it seriously, as they should. And that seems to be what the supporters of the Israeli government didn't want heard at Harvard. They certainly didn't want Harvard's imprimatur put on me by virtue of, of this fellowship. You know, one really unseemly aspect of this dispute around Harvard is that quite a number of partisan supporters of the Israeli government turned around and started accusing me of being anti-Semitic. And I'm used to this. I mean, this happens a lot, but it's a real problem. I mean, first, it's preposterous in my case. I mean, I, I am Jewish, 100% Jewish. My father fled Nazi Germany as a young boy. You know, the idea that I'm, I'm somehow anti-Semitic is just absurd, which is why I just accept it is, you know, this is what people do to try to silence criticism of Israel. But there is a broader problem here because anti-Semitism is a serious issue. It is a serious threat to Jews around the world today. And if people come to equate charges of anti-Semitism with efforts to stifle or deflect criticism of Israel, they're going to start taking anti-Semitism less seriously. Oh, just another charge of anti-Semitism, somebody trying to silence criticism of Israel. You know, that'll be the standard response. And do you think that what happened to you reflects a general weakness in academic freedom in America? Or is it a reflection of a specific issue, maybe one at Harvard, maybe one just over criticism of the state of Israel? Do you think that this indicates that there's a broader set of worries? Well, I mean, there clearly is a certain cancel culture in American universities, which is very negative. And, you know, one thing that I've tried to stress in the case of Harvard is that the answer to pro-Palestinian students or scholars feeling penalized or marginalized is not to do the same thing to pro-Israeli scholars or students, but rather is to ensure that everybody feels free to express their views without penalty, whether for or against the Israeli government or, you know, for or against whatever the other controversial topic of the, the day is. Mm -hmm. 
Just before we go any further, a spokesman for Harvard has told us Dean Douglas Elmendorf decided not to make this fellowship appointment as he sometimes decides not to make other proposed academic appointments based on an evaluation of the candidate's potential contributions to the Kennedy School. We have internal procedures in place to consider nominations for fellowships and other appointments, and we do not discuss our deliberations about individuals who may be under consideration. It's the Harvard Kennedy School's explicit and consistent policy that we do not engage with donors or funders in our deliberations or decisions related to fellowship appointments. Idris, I guess one of the paradoxes about an institution like Harvard is it's extremely wealthy, which ought to allow academics there a degree of freedom. But in order to maintain that wealth or even to increase it, the university has to keep its donors sweet, which can sometimes push in the other direction. You know, one reason I wanted to talk to Ken Roth was that I think it illustrated the sort of set of pressures that universities are under. So sometimes it can be donors, particularly for these fellowships, which aren't permanent academic positions. In in Ken Roth's case, actually, the salary for that position was zero. um, So it wasn't a particularly uh, pecuniary loss that Harvard was facing as well. But on the other end, you know, it could be uh, DEI administrators, which have grown in importance in American institutions over the last few years. And we've especially seen uh, over the last few years quite a lot about students demanding certain professors be fired for various transgressions. And one thing that is new in Republican-led states, legislatures there are observing this and reacting to it and are imposing basically their own views on what a academically free university should be. And I think that actually they haven't nailed the balance correctly. So Florida, for example, has basically written a law that says that certain sets of ideas, including the idea that racism is systemic, is one that can't be taught at universities unless it is done so in an objective manner, which is, I mean, quite hard to understand. In Idaho, Republicans there passed a law banning the teaching of critical race theory, not only in schools, which states have more control over, but also universities themselves. So if what Republican legislatures are starting to do is too much, if it goes too far, what's the version of balance that exists? And is anyone advancing it? So ideally, it would be within the universities themselves that they would basically lay out a strong set of principles of academic freedom that they wish to uphold, and that would be imposed from the top. So you would have an administration that isn't fearful of making controversial decisions. But absent that, if the state legislature is going to be involved, you could imagine a narrower set of legislation, which just focused on hiring decisions and said that certain sets of qualifications are admissible for examination and others aren't. State legislatures have fairly broad authority to determine how people are hired. That might be more limited than what we're seeing now. Adrice, one of the things I struggle with is understanding how big a problem this is or isn't. And what would be the gauge of that? How does one go about measuring something as intangible as whether people feel afraid to speak or whether the tenor of academic debate has been extremely narrowed by some of these policies? I mean, you, you could survey people. So, you know, there, there are surveys of faculty and, and college students that look at this. One issue is that the kinds of people who are interested in asking about that are the ones who are primed to be concerned about it anyway. Um, so there isn't really a gold standard of, of opinion on, on this. I mean, stuff that does exist does show some concerning trends. That would be the the way that I would think about measuring it. But you're right, it's a fairly nebulous concept. 
So I think in conclusion, there are a whole load of different threats to academic freedom in America. And in a sense, it was ever thus. This is something people have been worrying about for a long time. I think there are some good and new reasons to worry, uh, which Idris has outlined. And on the left, or at least on institutions that are left-leaning, I think there is this real phenomenon, which you write about in your piece, Idris, of the growth of a you know very well-intentioned diversity bureaucracy in academia, which then has a strong interest in sort of perpetuating its own existence and, and coming up with reasons for that. But it also seems possible to me, and this is one of the conclusions I think you you drew, that when ideologies of this kind get bureaucratized, they lose some of their power, right? So it may be that there's something self-correcting here. Yeah, one of the professors I spoke to who was skeptical did say that although she thought that you know courts would eventually settle this issue, she also thought that the soft power of these ideas would diminish because basically mandating a certain set of ideas results in cynicism and the very values that it sets out to create, which I think is an important point. And she says that she already sees students who don't take these terribly seriously. And, and you know, e- even the people who are quite pro don't necessarily know that it's making a difference in terms of actual quality or, or teaching. Yeah, I wonder, Idris, how much of this is just signaling. So clearly, in the case of Berkeley, it is more than that because they're using it to inform hiring. But do you think broadly that this is just about signaling on both sides, signaling that the left wants to make that they support diversity broadly and signaling on the right that they view that concept as unfathomable in and of itself? Yeah, I I think it is largely signaling. But like you said, it's bleeding over into hiring and it's bleeding over into classroom instruction. And and once it starts to do that, I think it becomes more than just signaling. Okay, let's leave that here for now. I expect this is a topic we're going to be coming back to at some point. For this week's quiz, I appropriately, I'm going to test your knowledge of colleges in America. I'm going to give you the name of the college or university that claims to be the oldest in each state. And I want you to tell me what that state is. And I can see you both looking a little alarmed. There are five states here that I'm going to quiz you on, not the full 50. Question one, the College of William and Mary is in which state? Virginia. Virginia. Yeah. Virginia is the correct answer. It was founded in 1693 by the then king and queen of England. Question two, the University of the Ozarks. Missouri. Missouri. The answer is Arkansas. It was founded in 1834, the University of the Ozarks. Oh, I knew that. I knew that. Darn it. Question three, and this is a good one, I think. Peru State College. Hmm. That sounds to me like Indiana, but I don't know why. I'm going to go with Indiana. Idris? Mm, how about Florida? The answer is Nebraska. Hmm. Peru State College, Nebraska, was founded in 1867. Question four, Rocky Mountain College. Colorado. I mean, it sounds like that would be the obvious answer, but I wish there was something more exciting. I guess Colorado. There's something more exciting is Montana, where it was founded in 1878, hmm. Rocky Mountain College misdirecting you there and the last one Transylvania University that's Kentucky it is Idris you had some home state advantage there (laughs) founded in 1780 I didn't keep track of the scores there but you guys both performed admirably as usual well thanks Idris listeners will be able to read your piece on DEI statements in next week's Economist thank you Charlotte thank you thank you This episode was produced by Harriet Noble and Stevie Hertz. Nicola Rolfast is our sound engineer. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. 
We also have a checks and balance newsletter, which you can sign up for at economist.com slash newsletters. You can get in touch with us via email. The address for that is podcasts at economist.com. Thanks to Mark from Edmonton, Canada, who emailed to tell us about Tad Lincoln, another problematic presidential child, following our discussion last week. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance for you next week.